I'm Kat. I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. This week we've got a case the like of which I don't think we've covered before. No. So human trafficking, specifically child trafficking, is a term we're all familiar with. Especially in the age of QAnon, Pizzagate, all that kind of stuff. And even going back to high profile missing children's cases of the 2000s, such as Madeleine McCann. And from the way the media and conspiracy theorists talk about child abduction and trafficking, you'd be forgiven for thinking that's a relatively modern phenomenon. Sadly, children being stolen from their parents is a tale as old as colonialism. And actually, really, a lot older than that, even. <laughs> even the most seemingly respectable orphanages and adoption companies can be a front for child trafficking rings. And today we're going to tell you the story of one such organisation. That is the Tennessee Children's Home Society, which is sometimes known as the Georgia Tan Children's Home. So the Tennessee Children's Home Society began as a non-profit orphanage in 1897. And so we're working from the definition that an orphanage is a residential institution for children uh, whose parents had either died, abandoned them, or their whereabouts were unknown. Orphanages also take in children who have been permanently separated from their parents for uh, reasons including child abuse, substance abuse in the home, mental illness in the home, which is detrimental to child's well-being, and parents who are unable or unwilling to take care of their children. So once a child is moved into an orphanage, the staff and carers at the orphanage take on the legal responsibilities for the child. Uh, different orphanages and children's homes work in different ways. Some try to reunite children with their biological families. Uh, for example, if there's substance abuse or mental health problems in the home following treatment for those problems, sometimes children are able to move back into the family home. In other situations, children are adopted into new families and others remain in residential care until they are 16 or 18 years old and then move out on their own. Uh, and some provide residential care in-house while other, others place children with foster families or in state-run facilities. There are, of course, many costs associated with running an orphanage or children's home and with the adoption process, but it is important to differentiate between for-profit and non-profit adoption agencies. And if they are for-profit, it's important to understand who is profiting from the adoptions. Yeah. Yeah. And it is important for us to reiterate that the Tennessee Children's Home Society was listed as a non-profit organisation. Uh, the society expanded into four branches across Tennessee, headquartered in Memphis, Knoxville, Jackson and Chattanooga. I love that name. Chattanooga. Chattanooga. Oh, what's the song? Pardon me, boy. Is that the Chattanooga choo-choo? Or wow, and then, but my dad always used to sing this version. It's like, "Pardon me, Roy, is that the cat who chewed your new shoes?" Wow, <laughs> I'll be here all week. <laughs> From its inception in 1897, the Tennessee Children's Home Society took in thousands of children, 
and for, from what we can find, the organisation carried on without incident for many years. Until it didn't. Which is usually the case. <laughs> That's usually how these things yeah. go. Uh, to start with, they didn't have their own residential facilities, so the children they took in were typically placed in state-run orphanages or with foster families until they were adopted out or returned to their biological families. In 1941, 44 years after the organization was founded, the Tennessee Children's Home Society lost its endorsement from the Child Welfare League of America, a.k.a. the CWLA, or COLA. I will not be calling it that. <laughs> okay. Um, the CWLA was founded in 1921, and for the past 100 years, their objective has been to, quote, make children a national priority. Uh, the organization focuses on advocacy for children and young people and promoting best practices for child welfare. Based on their current website, we think, although we're not entirely sure, but uh, we think that if they endorse a um, children or young persons organization, it means that that organization adheres to CWLA standards or follows their best practices. So for the Tennessee uh, Children's Home Society to lose its endorsement from uh, the CWLA, we think that it means that they no longer met those standards laid out by the CWLA for orphanages and adoption agencies. Oh, so catch my breath there. Um, <laughs> the reason for the removal of endorsement uh, is because it was discovered that the children's home was routinely destroying the paperwork associated with the child's uh, or the children's placements. But the society's director, Georgia Tan, argued that they were protected by Tennessee's privacy laws and therefore there was no need for uh, any paperwork to be kept, obviously. Doesn't really work like that, though, does it? No. 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 Yeah. So throughout the 1940s, former child residents and their parents, both biological and adopted, uh, began to ask more and more questions about what was going on at the Tennessee Children's Home Society, specifically the Memphis branch, which still took until 1950 for authorities to seriously look at the society and, more specifically, its director, George Tan, when the Tennessee governor at the time... Gordon Browning. Now, if you're British and of a certain age, you'll know why that's funny. <laughs> we did have a prime minister called Gordon Brown at one point. Yes. The less said about that, the better, but it's amusing. Uh, so, Governor Gordon Browning announced an investigation into the Tennessee Children's Home Society on September 11th, 1950, after receiving reports that that the society had been selling children for profit. Now, you might have noticed that the name Georgia Tan keeps popping up here. So let's talk about who she was and how she ended up turning a respectable children's society into what has been described as one of the biggest child trafficking rings in American history. Yikes. Um, yeah, that's bad. Yeah. So, according to the Newton County, Mississippi Historical and Genealogical Society, Georgia Tan was born in Hickory, Mississippi in July 1891. 
She was the eldest of two children born to George and Beulah. Her younger brother, Rob Roy, was born in 1894. George was a judge and Beulah was a teacher. Uh, the Tan family home has been described as the place to be for the upper classes in turn-of-the-century Mississippi. Uh, as And as a result of her parents' status among the social and political elite, Tan spent her life rubbing shoulders with the rich and powerful. Uh, she received a personal invitation to President Truman's inauguration and was even sought out by Eleanor Roosevelt for her expertise on child welfare. Uh, so despite her privileged upbringing, Tan's parents were reportedly neglectful of their children, with her father reportedly saying he would need a minister, school teacher, and a doctor to figure his children out. Well, his wife was one of those things, so... Yeah. Just need the two, then. Really? Yeah. Uh, Tan's parents wanted her to become a concert pianist, and Tan attended the Martha Washington College in Virginia graduating with a degree in music in 1913. Uh, for two summers during her college life, she also took classes on social work at Columbia University in New York. But despite her parents' hopes, Tan decided that she wanted to follow in her father's footsteps and become a lawyer. Uh, under his tutelage, she studied for and passed the Mississippi State Bar Exam. But her father discouraged her from practicing law because it was still very uncommon for women to work outside the home at that time. Why tutor your child so that they can pass the exams and then be like, no, 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 we can't have you do that because it's it's not acceptable. But I, I feel like, yeah, I could see there being a line drawn between like studying the law and practicing the law. Like, because yeah. I could imagine that this kind of, you know, upper class family could value education, but not necessarily value, like, work. Doing anything with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but Tan had no desire to get married and have children, so she turned to one of the few, quote unquote, acceptable careers for unmarried women at that time. And that was social work. Uh, soon after passing the bar exam, Tan found employment at the Mississippi Children's Home Society. Uh, we're not sure when she started working at the Children's Home, but she quickly gained a reputation for herself. Uh, at this time in history, social work was very much in its infancy, and there were still a lot of loopholes in the law or sort of completely uh, wide open gaping holes in the law. Uh, and Tan quickly exploited those gaps. Uh, during her teens and early 20s, Tan had done a lot of local charity work, so she was actually quite well known in both the upper and lower echelons of Mississippi society. And this meant that she was able to very easily exploit poor families in the local area and manipulate them into surrendering their children into the care of the state and her children's home. And by 1920, she was regularly stealing babies from the poor and selling them to the rich. Having a father who was a very well-respected local judge made it much easier for her to play the system with absolutely zero consequences. Although there was very little regulation in regards to adoption in Mississippi in the early 1920s. But we're still pretty sure that kidnapping and selling babies was illegal. 
Gen- even then. Generally considered to be not legal, I think. Yeah. In 1922, uh, Tan, who was now aged 31, actually adopted a child for herself. We assume she didn't actually pay anyone for this child. <laughs> and named her June. Shortly afterwards, she and a close friend named Anne Atwood moved in together. Anne was only 23 and she had recently, shock horror, given birth to a son even though she wasn't married. Uh, Anne actually changed her name to Atwood Hollingsworth to make it seem as though she was widowed. Uh, The couple's relationship, or situationship, however you wish to think of it, has been described as a Boston marriage, which was when two women who were either independently wealthy or each had their own income moved in together. Now, these types of arrangements were at one time looked upon favourably, two independent women and all the rest of it, you know, blah, blah, blah. But by the 1920s, people had begun to realise exactly what they were. Yeah, sounds like they were lesbian lesbianing together yeah. to me. But, you know, it's it's not like I would know anything about that, so. No, what would you know yeah. to know about that at all? Not, not, not an expert. So, yes. Our consensus is they gay in, but <laughs> uh, the exact nature of Tan and Atwood's relationship was never publicly revealed. Um, it is widely accepted that they were in a lesbian relationship, um, and you could say this this was sort of solidified when a couple of years later... Uh, Tan was run out of Mississippi and Atwood followed her, you know, as as all just friends might do. Yeah. But uh, so Tan was fired from the Mississippi Children's Home Society in 1924 when her superiors finally caught on to her questionable placements. Um, And Tan and Atwood fled to Memphis, Tennessee, where Tan quickly found work at the Tennessee Children's Home Society. No relation as far as we can tell. Uh, But they also clearly didn't check uh, references. (laughs) Maybe they should have had a relation in this case. Yeah. And it sounds from doing the research, like most states seem to have like a children's home society society at this time. There weren't necessarily any links. Yeah. So Tan was initially hired as an executive secretary at the Memphis branch of the Tennessee Children's Home Society, but uh, she used what's described as, quote, aggressive tactics. Bullying. Yep. Uh, George Tan aggressively took over the Tennessee Children's Home Society before the end of 1924. So as soon as, as Tan had bullied her way into the position of director of the Tennessee Children's Home Society, she, of course as one does, went straight back to trafficking children. So, under Tennessee law in 1924, adoption services could only charge for their services and could not charge for children, so couldn't sell children to rich parents, which really seems like it should be like a no-brainer. Yeah. But here we are. So... (laughs) Um, parents who adopted in Tennessee were only charged a small fee, which was essentially like an admin fee. 
But for out-of-state adoptions, the rules didn't apply. And so Tan began selling uh, a children in her care to rich families in other states, uh, New York and California in particular. In the mid-1920s, attitudes around adoption began to change in society. Prior to this, um, adoption had had very negative connotations and there was a lot of stigma that went with it. It was often seen as a sign of a, you know, quote, broken or barren woman who was unable to provide her husband with a child. And the children themselves are often seen as less than biological children. Um, they were considered unwanted and it was assumed their parents were likely unmarried, which was still considered very shameful. But in the 1920s, attitudes began to change and adoption began to be seen as kind of like saviorism for rich people. Very much in the same way that it became fashionable for celebrities to adopt children from so-called third world countries, like 20 years ago. Absolutely no concept of what it means to take children from the society they're born in and transplant them halfway across the world and bring them up with parents who have no idea about racism, really. Yep. Yeah, so society's elite began to adopt say they, so that they could save poor, unwanted children from a life of neglect and poverty. Allegedly. <laughs> Obviously, this change in attitudes led to a surge in demand for children to be saved, which was good news for people like George Tan. Now, as we said at the top of the show, there are many reasons for children to enter a children's home or an orphanage. And for many of these children, it was not meant to be a permanent solution, but rather a short-term placement until their families were able to take care of them again. However, for someone running a child trafficking ring, the expense of looking after these children was a bit of an inconvenience. So instead of being able to sell these children for hundreds of dollars, Tan now had to spend hundreds of dollars looking after them and providing for these children. But Tan had a solution for that too. I have a feeling it's not going to be a good one. So if you're one of our patrons, you may have listened to the episode we did quite a few months ago now um, about Amelia Dyer and baby farming in Victorian England. Uh, and this is actually quite a similar situation to that. Um, and if you're not a patron, but are interested in listening to that episode, you uh, can go check it out it'll it's there so for you know for anyone who hasn't listened to that or you know are not familiar with baby farming in victorian england it was the practice of accepting the custody of a child in exchange for payment um some baby farmers would take in a child for regular payments where as others would adopt for sort of a large lump sum so it was kind of um, an early version of like foster care and adoption as we now know it, but it was not regulated or controlled like it is now, of course. Uh, so some baby farmers would set up as uh, lodgings for unwed expectant mothers, and after giving birth, the mothers would leave the child with the landlady until they could find employment and take their children back. Um, it was a fairly standard practice for rich upper-class families to put their children uh, out to nurse or in the care of a nurse, 
where the child would be sent to live with a poor family in the area until they were about four years old so that the parents didn't have to deal with, you know, toilet training their children or teaching them the manners that were expected of them in upper-class Victorian England. However, this was very much a case of classy when you're rich and trashy when you're poor. And sadly, there were more poor single mothers using baby farmers because they were struggling with money than there were rich upper-class parents using them so they didn't have to change nappies or, quote, witness unmannered children. And yes, that is a direct quote from one of the sources we used for the baby farming episode. I, I just, it's, it's not even like manage unmannered children, it's witness them. Like, I will not bear witness to the existence yeah. Of untrained children. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, so we're working really hard to train the dog right now. And we're watching these, these these videos put out by a certain set of dog trainers. And they keep saying like, you know, a puppy doesn't come trained. It doesn't come knowing what to do. And I feel like these these people in Victorian England need to hear that. Like, your baby doesn't come trained to know which one yeah. is the salad fork. Like, yeah. <laughs> you have to teach it. <laughs> so, when the sort of poor and unwed mothers got themselves back on their feet, found some stable employment, a place to live, they would go back to the farmers to collect their children. But they often found that their babies had mysteriously died. And they obviously had no social standing and no resources to find out what had actually happened to their baby. They just had to literally take the word of the farmer, baby farmer, and say, no, sorry, your baby's dead. Yeah. Bye. And this is pretty much the same thing that was going on in Memphis. Almost all the children coming through the doors of the Tennessee Children's Home Society came from poor families and or single parent families. And when they found out that their children had mysteriously died, these families had no financial resources or contacts or standing or anything to try and take on Tan and the organization and find out what really happened to their children. Um, sadly, it turned out that many children were dying while they were under the care of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Uh, according to a New York Post article, at least 500 children died while under Tan's care, and the causes of death are generally agreed to be neglect, starvation, disease, and prolonged abuse. Uh, of course, as we just mentioned, when the families found out their child had died, they really had no way of pursuing the matter, um, even to the point of like not being able to get the body back to bury in a family plot or near the fa family home you know, never mind to have a full investigation carried out uh, to find out what exactly had happened to their child. Uh, unfortunately, they just had to take Tan at her word and accept that their child was gone. So following Tan's takeover of the organization, the child mortality rate in Memphis and the surrounding area skyrocketed and at one point became the highest in the entire country. The children who did survive their time at the Tennessee Children's Home Society didn't fare much better in terms of returning to their loved ones. The children who didn't die were sold off as private adoptions as quickly as possible. As Tennessee law prohibited for-profit adoptions, Tan focused on out-of-state adoptions. She claimed that she was placing children with suitable families 
and those suitable families just happened to be living out of state. There was none of them in Tennessee. Sure. But the truth was she was searching for rich families, which is why she focused on finding adoptive parents in New York and California, as opposed to the southern states, which obviously had high levels of both urban and rural poverty, especially at this time following the Wall Street crash. And obviously the depression. Yeah. Uh, admin fees charged for in-state adoptions were $7, whereas out-of-state adoptions Tan charged around seven hundred dollars per child. Just add a nice, a nice, nice couple zeros on the end of that. Yeah, seven dollars in nineteen twenty-four is one hundred and five point nine five dollars today. So that's what eighty-five, ninety pound. Yeah. And seven hundred dollars in nineteen twenty-four is ten thousand five hundred and call it ninety-five dollars today. Yeah. So that's a lot of money. Yeah, and that's a big difference between yeah, you know, in state yeah. and out of state. And while she was telling the biological parents that their children had died. Tan was also telling the adoptive parents that the biological parents had died and the children were orphans. And even that wasn't the lowest she would sink. Have no doubt. <laughs> so, as if running a child trafficking ring and living a life of luxury while children were abused and neglected in the very children's homes that she was in charge of wasn't bad enough... Uh, to finance her luxury lifestyle, Tan started literally stealing children right off the street. Uh, Tan would be driven around in an expensive Packard limousine, and if she saw children who were playing outside without parental supervision, which wasn't uncommon at the time, and if these children looked like the you know, sort of pretty children that affluent families wanted to adopt, she would just grab them off the street. Uh, sometimes she would lure them into the car, often using, using candy to entice them, or she would get out of the car, pick them up, and carry them to the car, kicking and screaming. There's no way to dress that up. That's just pure evil. That's kidnapping, is what that's called. Well, yeah, it is. Like, yeah. That's child abduction. <laughs> yeah. Now, you might be thinking about now that even back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, when you know, poor people had even less access to legal representation than they do now, uh, then, you you know, there must still have had to have been some kind of legal process or paperwork at least involved in adopting out all of these children. And if you're thinking that, you would be right. Much like she had done with her father in Mississippi, Tan had found a judge who could be corrupted into helping her traffic children across the USA. Enter Memphis Family Court Judge Camille Kelly. Judge Kelly was actually a very well-respected judge. She tried over 50,000 juvenile cases and was well known for her sympathetic approach. Even shunning the traditional judge's robes for brightly coloured outfits and flower brooches, which she believed would put the children at ease. She also wrote three books about uh, working in family court. Yeah. And trying juvenile cases. 
When she retired in 1950, Judge Kelly claimed to have received positive reactions in 85 to 90% of the juvenile cases she tried. That's not a bad average. So what qualifies as a positive reaction? I don't know. Is that like a... Is that like reform or... I honestly don't know. I just found... That was the statistic I found was 85 to 90% there was a positive reaction. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Maybe it's intentionally vague. Yeah. She ended up on Georgia Tan's payroll. And whilst on the payroll, Judge Kelly railroaded hundreds, possibly even thousands of illegal adoptions through family court. She would remove the biological parents' legal rights without due process and then provide Tan with the relevant documents she needed to complete adoptions. It is difficult to know exactly how many of the estimated 5,000 children who were stolen and trafficked by Tan that Judge Kelly actually assisted with. Some estimates are as low as 20%, others are as high as 80%. Big gap there. Yeah. Now, according to an article by Insider.com, Tan also had someone on, on the payroll who worked in the welfare department in Memphis. So whenever someone applied for any kind of welfare or benefits, this person would take their name, pass it on to Judge Kelly. She would then flag the children as being at risk. They would, ben, they would be removed from the family home into the custody of Tan and the Children's Society. It's, a, it's like a conveyor belt. Pretty much. That's that's pretty much what, what it was. So you might be thinking that even with the help of a judge, Judge Kelly, and potentially a, a welfare officer, it probably would still be difficult to traffic hundreds of children a year via for-profit adoptions. And again, you would be right. So according to author Barbara Byzance Raymond, who spent 16 years investigating Tan and the children's home, as well as Kelly. Uh, Tan also had the support of E.H. Crump. Uh, Crump had been the mayor of Memphis from 1910 to 1916, but remained influential in the city's politics until his death in 1954. Crump, like most elites in Tennessee at the time, supposedly believed Tan to be just, you know, a wonderful social worker dedicated to, you know, lifting children out of poverty and helping them find affluent families who could give them a better life. But there's a lot of that in this case. <laughs> in actuality, Tan was paying Crump to ensure that she could continue trafficking children. So Tan's trafficking ring was helped further in 1943 when a wealthy business donated a mansion on Poplar Avenue in Memphis to the organization. Now, Tan no longer had to go through state-run residential facilities or foster parents, and it didn't matter how well the children were or weren't looked after, um, nor did it matter if those looking after the children were qualified, which... Spoiler alert, they weren't. Uh, so there was very little stopping Tan from continuing her schemes. Um, so with the new mansion, more and more children were passing through the doors of the Memphis branch of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. The ones who were deemed saleable, 
which we realize is fucking horrible. <laughs> but but is, that is how yeah. it's that's how it's always worded is the children she could sell for the highest yeah. amount. So it, it's, it's fucking just awful, but sadly that's how twisted. it went. Um, so the ones who were deemed saleable were quickly adopted out to fam families out of state with Tan and her <coughs> gay friend, Anne Atwood. Um, yeah, so the gay ladies would travel to New York and California with groups of children every couple of weeks to deliver them to their new homes and collect the money, which was 100 times the going rate for the in-state adoptions. And of the average out-of-state adoption fee of $700, Tan uh, kept about 90%. That's a lot That's of a money. a lot of money. That's like $9,000. So the less saleable children were adopted in-state to maintain the appearance of having, of, you know, it being a legitimate organization who wasn't in it for the money. But those who were ill, badly behaved, or just not pretty enough to sell, I mean, be adopted, yeah. uh, were literally left to starve or die from disease. And these were usually very minor illnesses, such as, you know, diarrhea, which was easily pre preventable even in the 1940s. Yeah. The home on Poplar Avenue was staffed almost entirely by women who were all dressed in white nurses' outfits, despite none of them being qualified to care for children in any way. Uh, many of them suffered from addiction, and Tan seemed to be the only person who would employ them. As for actual doctors and nurses, Tan either ignored their advice and whatever treatments they prescribed, or she just paid them to look the other way. Some of the children were buried in unmarked graves in local cemeteries, but others just disappeared, which is why we'll likely never know how many families fell victim to Tan and her merry band of traffickers. But from the mid-1940s onwards, more and more people began to ask questions about Tan and her adoption practices. Parents were realising that their children hadn't died in care, the children were now adults, they wanted to know more about their biological families. Sometimes in terms of like mental, um, medical histories, things like that. Which is even now still a talking point for adopt yeah. uh, adoptees. Yeah. Both parents and children were realising something was very much amiss. Yeah. Um, so children who had come through the children's home were finding that their birth certificates had been falsified. This did become a standard practice at one point. Uh, adoption agencies would falsify birth certificates to protect children from the stigma of being adopted. Uh, but, of course, as she does everything, Tan would falsify birth certificates. But, of course, Tan did it for more nefarious reasons. Uh, providing false birth certificates meant that the children and their new adoptive parents would not know the children's true parentage and therefore nobody would know that the child had actually been stolen from their parents. Uh, it also made children more, quote, sellable, because people want to adopt younger children and babies rather than older children, so their new birth certificates usually made them as young as was believable. Uh, 
Many adoption agencies didn't adopt to non-Christian parents at the time, so when Tan found pr prospective parents of other faiths, um, especially Jewish families, these, you know, children of Southern Baptist families suddenly came from good Jewish families, and she wanted to place them in a new good Jewish family. Obviously. Yeah, and her excuse for when she said, you know, these children came from good Jewish families but were somehow in care was normally that the parents were at medical school or law school and so they couldn't look after the children, so they had to be adopted. Of course. Uh, but there is another problem with falsifying birth certificates. It means that children have no knowledge of their family history, which is particularly problematic, like we said, when it comes to things like inherited medical conditions. And uh, even today, adoptees still struggle to access their family medical histories. Uh, as well as parents and children asking questions about what was going on at the Tennessee Children's Home Society, people began to notice that Tan could barely balance the books at the society, but she was being chauffeured around everywhere and lived a life of luxury and, you know, was rubbing shoulders with presidents and film stars and all kinds of fancy folks. Um... <laughs> including so celebrities who adopted through the Tennessee Children's Home Society included Joan Crawford and June Allison and her husband Dick Powell. So was that Joan Crawford? She adopted twins. I think, yeah, I think it was the twins, yeah, came through from the uh, Tennessee Children's Home. I can't remember uh, June Allison and Dick Powell, but yeah, and there's some celebrities who who later found out that they themselves were stolen babies. God. Um, according to the Wikipedia page, let me just have a quick look now. Um, profess professional wrestler Ric Flair uh, reported that he had been a victim of the society, having been illegally removed from his birth mother. And race car driver Jean Tapia uh, had a son who was stolen by Georgia Tan. Jesus. Uh, Georgia Tan and her merry band of child traffickers would continue to get away with things until September 1950, when Tennessee Governor Gordon Browning announced an investigation into the society, which is back where we started. Yeah. This did little to actually bring about justice for the thousands of families who had fallen victim to Tan's trafficking ring. On September 15th, 1950, just three days before Governor Browning filed charges against Tan and the society, Georgia Tan died from cancer. That's just not fair. Yeah. Uh, Judge Kelly uh, resigned and retired in the autumn of 1950, just days after the scandal broke. Convenient. Sure, it's a complete coinkydink. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, charges were never, never filed against her. And she then died in 1955 at the age of 76 from complications following a stroke. Does that mean she was working well into her 70s? Like, she was at least 70, 71. Yeah. And she was still working. Yeah. And she was still on Tan's pay payroll. Yeah. Nah. Just retire. Like... <laughs> You could have retired years earlier and still had a decent life. You didn't have to be a piece of shit. But there's more money in, in 
being, you know, an underworld kingpin than just yeah. being a, a judge. Than just being a judge, yeah. Yeah. As well as everything we've already told you about the trafficking ring, the official investigation into the Tennessee Children's Home Society also found that Tan had colluded with local doctors, nurses, and homes for unwed mothers in Memphis to steal children. Tan would take newborn babies from the homes for unwed mothers under the pretext of being a nurse who was taking them to hospital for medical treatment, then she would sell them. The mothers would then be told a few days later that their babies had died and been buried immediately for compassionate reasons. So many, many stories have come out since the 1950s about what went on during Georgia Tan's reign at the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Some of the older children were used as free labor around the home on Poplar Avenue. Uh, they had to clean the house, change diapers, and run errands for Tan and the other staff, including collecting alcohol for them. Others have spoken about how they never had the adoption process explained to them. They were taken from their families and told that they had to stay at the children's home for a while, and then they were just taken and left with a new family. Uh, Tan and the staff didn't tell them that they wouldn't see their biological families again or that they were being adopted into a new family, and it was left to the new family to explain it all to them. Um, that is is just a whole nother level of evil. Yeah. And also, like, I don't know, I I wonder in some situations, like, if these kids, especially if they were a little bit older, like, would be in these new families, quote unquote, and be like, yeah, but, like, my biological family isn't dead. Like, this is not what was supposed to happen, but mm. the new parents either didn't believe them or, you know, knew that that wasn't yeah. the case, you know, knew of or the... Or thought they knew that... Yeah. Yeah, it's... There's so many layers of deception from, like, all different directions that it's... Yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, adoptive parents, it's not necessarily their fault. I mean, how no. many of them... How many of them... Would know what was going on, although... I do have one big question about out-of-state adoption, but I'll come to that at the end. Okay. Um, yeah, so if new adoptive parents ask too many questions about the children or their biological parents, Tan would threaten to have them arrested for neglect and have the adoption revoked. So they also weren't uh, fully informed, sounds like. Yeah. It is impossible for us to know how many families fell victim to George Tan and her child trafficking ring. Official estimates stand at a minimum of 5,000 children stolen and trafficked, and 5, 000, uh, 500 who died whilst in the care of the children's home. This, I don't think, includes the number of children who were signed into care on legitimate grounds. Mm -hmm. I think that is... 5,000 who were stolen under false pretenses or just snatched off the street. Mm -hmm. uh, the Tennessee Children's Home Society was shut down for good in December 1950. And although it had repercussions for adoption laws and practices in the state, nobody was ever prosecuted for their involvement. 
in the trafficking of thousands of children around the USA. And that is the story of Georgia Tan and the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Uh, we should say there is a current organisation called the Tennessee Children's Home. It is an accredited state facility and it has nothing to do with the original society. Probably a good thing to note. Don't don't go at them, y'all. Yeah, it is a sort of a footnote in a lot of the sources about <laughs> this, so I just thought we should add that in. So, uh, thoughts? <sighs> it just sucks. It sucks really bad. Mm. It's a, It's another one of those cases that, like... It's just kind of amazing that she managed to do this for so long to so many children, to so many families, like to an entire city, basically. Yeah. Or region. Um, And, you know, like a lot of the sort of older cases we've covered, there were both societal and like intentional forces that allowed her to continue for so long. Oh, absolutely. Which, yeah. you know, is unfortunate. Like I there's no <laughs> I can't even be quippy about this. Like it just sucks so bad. Yeah. One one of the the big questions I have. So in state adoptions they charge like seven dollars. Out of state was a hundred times that. Yeah. Why would you pay a hundred times the fee for an in-state adoption to adopt out of state? And that's that's my question: is why were these people in other states paying so much? There will have been some kind of system in place in virtually every state. Yeah, probably. And I know, like, the the system will have been so different to, to what it is now and sort of background checks and things like that won't have been in place in the same way, if at mm. all, in most states. And this literally was a case of all these people have money, so they must be better. Mm. And Tan, you know, according to all the sources, was a big proponent of enforcing class boundaries and, you know class differences that you know who who had the right to look after these children and things like that and who would make good parents mm-hmm. but that's still a question in my mind why would you pay if you could pay a hundred dollars as an admin fee to adopt a child in your own state why would you pay ten thousand dollars to adopt a child from another state yeah like the only reason i could think of would be like either not as many children available for adoption in the state that you're in or you mm. don't qualify in the so i get yeah. like for instance with the um jewish families so if yeah if you know, California wouldn't adopt out to Jewish families, then... 
Oh, from from that perspective, I can completely yeah. understand what they weren't no. all. No, and that's the thing. Of those thousands, they weren't all going that way, and that's the big question mark I have. Not that that excuses what she was doing in any no. way. But it does... I think that there were probably definitely a number of families who adopted children from her that knew exactly what was going on. And, like, that's, you know, there's in situations like this, there's always sort of people willing to take advantage of an already bad situation. Yeah. I mean, part of it, of of course, will be that savior complex. We see Mm -hmm. it now. There are thousands, probably millions of children in the UK and the US who need adopt need to be adopted, need to be fostered, and people will pay thousands to go and adopt a, ch- a child from uh, from Asia, from Africa. I could totally see someone from you know upper class New York society being like in the 1920s, being like, oh well, you know, I I we adopted Jimmy from from you know backwater tennessee and we saved him from that life of you know it's it's kind of it's the same thing mm-hmm. on a smaller scale potentially yeah um especially yeah. at that time in the united states because there was a a very drastic cultural difference between coastal elite society and uh, you know like we said before like southern rural society like you've got you've got industrial cities and and cultures versus like agrarian farm land and and culture yeah. which is like really different and of course in this the southern states jim crow yes. laws were in in full swing yes. then as well so Odessa there'll even have been this thing of oh look we adopted a black baby from the south we saved yeah, them probably yeah and it does also show that the the differences in attitudes and social work like back then it was very much like get these children out rip them from what they know and put them in a rich family and that'll solve the mm-hmm. problems whereas now there's a lot more emphasis on keeping families together yes yeah in the in the good cases <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, they say there there is nothing good really came out of this. Um, it was the I mean I first heard about Tennessee Children's Home from watching an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Mm-hmm. Even into the eighties and nineties, there were still people trying to find their birth families and everything, and so it got shut shut down in the fifties, nineteen fifty. That's seventy years ago yeah. now. Everyone who worked there, or virtually everyone who ever worked there, will be dead yeah. by now. And a lot of the children who went through it would will also yeah. have died by yeah. now. But even into the 80s and 90s, there were still people trying to find their biological families because they'd been ripped from their families and then sold to another family and they wanted to know, but they obviously had no paperwork or anything. And some did manage to, to reunite. Mm-hmm. And... From what I mean, there's a lot of, especially in like rural areas, the younger children would go into care and the older children would work on the farms, mm-hmm. typically. 
So there's cases of the older siblings trying to find the younger siblings or find out what happened mm-hmm. to them. And some obviously have managed to find them. Some some did die in the children's home. Some they've just never found any record of anywhere. But I said it's really sad and there's, we'll never have a number on how many people were were affected by yeah. this woman's just greed. Yeah. Yeah, that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Yeah. And I think at one point it was uh this whole operation was worth the equivalent of eleven million dollars today. I believe it. So on that note <laughs> um yeah, let us know what you think of the the case have you heard of it before um i hadn't heard of it before we started talking about uh we were going to do this one uh and yeah um you can come talk to us about that on social media uh you know mostly instagram at square mile of murder that's where we hang out the most yeah um and uh if you like the show we would super duper love it if you could um, give us a rating and a review on on your podcast app of choice, uh, and if if you uh, would like to subscribe so that you never miss uh, a new episode when when we put them out. If you would like to go one step further and support the pod with some of your hard earned money, uh, we have a merch shop. Uh, we have our cone logo, the Skidmore raccoon, and the four square mile cases. They're on t-shirts, vests, hoodies, bags, mugs, face masks, stickers, all, all sorts. kinds of stuff. Uh, the link will be in the episode description. Social media on the website, it's basically everywhere. Yeah. Or, or as well, instead, if you wish, you could sign up to our Patreon. Uh, pledges start at just one pound or one dollar a month and for that you get normal episodes a day early two dollars or two pounds a month you get normal episodes a day early you get one bonus episode a month and some exclusive merch that you can't buy five dollars or more you get that plus a second bonus episode ten dollars or more you get a third bonus episode as well as everything else so the Amelia Dyer case that sort of dovetails nicely historically with this one is on our Patreon for I think I want to say I think it's a 10 10 pound page I can look it Yeah, up, I actually. think so. June bonus episode Amelia Dyer and Victorian baby farming is for 10 pound patrons yeah yeah so yeah like we we're trying really hard to make um the patreon worth your time and worth your money um and uh as always for for patreon and for the regular show like if you have suggestions for cases or if you know, there's something specifically that you want to hear us talk about, or you never ever want us to do a certain kind of case again, like we would love to know what you want to hear. Because if if we don't know what you guys like, then 
we don't know how to make what you like, if that makes sense. Yeah. Basically, we just need a bit of feedback. The only thing we have really at the moment is you guys like old time cases, which is fun because yeah. we like them as well. Yeah, I'm kind of into that. I I could I could even, you know, we could do a ban on cases from, you know, after 1980 or something. So basically, only we could just, I was going to say 1990 because then it could be just cases. That predate us. Yeah, cases older than us. There you go. Yeah, so like like we've gotten a lot of feedback saying that like oh I love the old cases. So if if that's the kind of thing you want to hear more of, if you want to hear more scandals and scams, con men kind of thing, or you know serial killers or whatever it may be, um, just let us know and we'll we'll work that into the schedule. Yeah, there's not a lot we'd outright say no to, is there? Yeah, no. There's a few. There's some things, but, you know, again, we're open to suggestion. Yeah. So thank you for listening, if you've stuck with us through all that waffle. Uh, yeah. We will be back on Friday for our $5 and up patrons. We have a serial killer case for you. Yes. Um, a very cold, snowy, wintry one as well. Very appropriate. <laughs> very appropriate. For everyone else, we will be back next week. So we'll see you then. Yep, thanks. Bye. Bye.